Morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you this morning after two Sundays away, one of annual leave and then one with our youth group up in Katoomba at the Kick Convention last weekend. A week on, I'm pleased to report the tiredness is beginning to fade away from a busy weekend, but it was a great weekend with our young people. We are blessed here with many, many teenagers who want to love and know the Lord Jesus more and more. So we can be very much encouraged by that. Friends, I'd like to start this morning with a question for us to answer, for us to answer together. What does our world consider to be success? What does our world consider to be success? Feel free to call out some answers for us. Money, wealth, power, yep. Big house, yep. Anyone at the back? Cars, status, I think I heard. Anything else? Hobbies, yep. Yep. All things that our world portrays to us as being the good life, the life of flourishing, aren't they? Things like popularity, fame, power, influence, achievement. One that didn't get mentioned, but that I think our world portrays regularly is assertiveness, confidence, being on the front foot, beauty. They're the kind of people that we see on our TV shows and magazine covers, aren't they? The, the beautiful people of our world, the wealthy. All things that our world tells us are the marks of the good life, flourishing. But yet, did you notice, as Jono just read for us, things that are all markedly absent from Jesus' words here on the Sermon on the Mount, wherein eight short Beatitudes, Jesus calls us to re-examine what the good life actually is. Just like our cars need a wheel alignment every so often, you know, potholes, bumps on the road, those little barriers that sometimes we bump into in car parks, they all knock our alignment out of whack, don't they? Over time, causing our cars to begin to drift slowly but surely one way or another. It's the same, you know, for us as followers of Jesus. In fact, often we, we don't even notice that over time we've begun to drift. We're bombarded with some of these messages we just shared day after day. We're told that the way to success is to have power and influence and wealth. We face pressure everywhere we turn, at work and at home and sometimes even within the church to compromise. And we don't realize that slowly but surely over time, We've lost our alignment. We've begun to drift. And that's why we need God's word to straighten out our thinking. And friends, that is what we have before us over these next eight weeks. I'm really excited by what we have before us. Because we have the opportunity to, to realign ourselves, to, to reset where Jesus is going to remind us what being his disciple really looks like. 
and perhaps expose some of those false narratives that we've allowed to slip in. But before we get stuck into the first beatitude today, we need to remind ourselves of the context of Jesus' words here on the Sermon on the Mount. If you've read through Matthew's Gospel in preparation for this series, you'll know that this is right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. At about 30 years of age, he bursts into the public consciousness. First of all, with his miraculous baptism, you might recall, with all three parts of the Godhead there and visible. He then goes to be tempted at the hands of Satan. And then after that, we're told, he heads up to Capernaum, up to the north of Israel, by the Sea of Galilee, where he begins to preach. And this is what Matthew records for us in chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. News of Jesus' ministry spread like wildfire throughout the region. And the crowds begin, thousands and thousands, to flock to see him. And it was precisely at that moment where the emotional intensity of the crowds was at its peak, where he heads up on a mountainside, sits down, and delivers this sermon. It would have been tempting, no doubt, for Jesus, from a worldly perspective, to, to capitalize on his popularity at that time and to enlist thousands to his cause. But instead, he lays before the crowds that are gathered what it looks like to truly be his disciple. There wouldn't be any easy believism or promises of health and wealth in this life. No, Jesus explains here on the Sermon on the Mount that the life of a disciple is demanding. The life of repentance, self-denial, pursuing holiness at great cost. That there'd be no claiming him as saviour without first submitting every part of our life to him as Lord. Now, friends, before we move on, just so that we're all on the same page at the start of this series, the Beatitudes that we're studying this term are God's design for and calling for all of us. It's important that we see that. These are the calling of every believer. The Beatitudes are the marks of a true Christian. These aren't like a, a buffet at a restaurant where you can pick and choose based on what takes your fancy. I'll have lots of mercy. That's a good one. A, a half dose of humility. I don't want to go too far on that. 
and a dash of righteousness, please, but none of the persecution or insult, thanks. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable despite the way I am. Now, friends, please see, these are all marks. These are all the calling of every believer. And I don't want you to, to think that these beatitudes are, are personality traits. They aren't like being, say, an introvert or an extrovert. They're not morally neutral things. There's nothing more godly about an introvert than an extrovert, is there? We can serve Jesus whichever way he's made us. Now, these aren't personality traits. These are things that we're all called to. They're signs that a life is now under the dynamic, life-changing rule of King Jesus. And let me say, friends, if these marks aren't there in us, we need to do some serious self-examination to consider where we need to repent and submit ourselves to Christ anew. Or perhaps even ask if we've truly submitted ourselves to him at all. And if you think that's a bit harsh, I think you'll see what I mean later on. Friends, we should find these Beatitudes demanding and confronting. None of us should walk away over the next two months feeling good about ourselves, thinking, yep, I've got that one down pat. These are meant to be hard because none of these qualities are natural for us. Do you see that? None of us are born out of the womb, meek or hungering for righteousness. Now, these traits here are only possible if you've surrendered your life to and are being transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not possible on our own. Paul reminds us of that in Philippians chapter 2. It is God who works in us to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do you remember those words in Philippians chapter 2? It's God who works in us at the level of our mind, transforming our, our desires, our orientation, such that we would seek after him and not the world. But he doesn't just change our mind. He enables us to act as well. He empowers our hands and our feet as we follow Jesus. And so, friends, there's a tension that we're going to need to maintain week by week as we work through the Beatitudes. It's good and right that we find these verses hard and confronting and direct. We should feel rebuked by these. But equally, we need to recognize that they're only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. They aren't standards that we need to meet in order to merit heaven. They're reminders, humbling at times, of who God has called us to be and who he's transforming us to be in Jesus. That's never more evident than in the first beatitude that we're going to look at today. Let's read Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, friends, let me say, whilst these words might be familiar to us. As Jono was reading, perhaps you are only half listening because you feel familiar with them. 
Let me say that these would have been mind-blowing, world-altering for those who heard them on the mountainside that day. I trust you're going to see that this morning. And in order to help us, what we're going to do is we're going to break down this beatitude into three parts so we can see the power of Jesus' words here. Let's start with the very first word. And the question, what does it actually mean to be blessed? Bless you is a word that just falls off our tongues, isn't it? We say it when someone sneezes. We say it when someone does something stupid. Ah, oh, bless you. You know, when they try to put clothes on the line without pegs, for example. I tend to end my emails to Christians with, instead of kind regards, God bless. Is that what it means to be blessed? Is that really what Jesus is talking about? Hoping that someone doesn't have the plague or that they're going to receive your email kindly? Well, you might have heard, perhaps if you've been hanging around churches for a while, that the word blessed that we find there at the start of all of the Beatitudes means happy. Have you heard that before? That blessed means happy? Well, that's kind of sort of right. But it doesn't quite capture what Jesus is expressing here. Because blessedness is much broader than just happiness. Let me explain. Happiness, you can actually see it in the word. Happiness is based on our circumstances, the happenings that we experience. Happiness is a subjective emotion. You might go down the beach this afternoon. It's a beautiful sunny day. There's a light breeze and you might think to yourself, Gee, I'm happy at the moment, feeling the sun on the back of your neck. Gee, I'm happy. But if a change comes through suddenly and you go down that same beach this afternoon and it's cold and wet, you're not going to be feeling happy, are you? Happiness, it's subjective. It's based on our circumstances. Whereas the word that's translated blessed here, it has, it has character in view. It's not based on how someone feels, but who they are. It's objective. It's based on God's assessment of us. One commentator I was reading describes blessedness as the God-endorsed life. The God-endorsed life. I like that. The kind of person that God looks on with favour and delight. So if that's what it means to be blessed, what exactly is it that earns this endorsement here in verse 3? The, the poor in spirit. Well, I want to start with what the poor in spirit doesn't mean. Perhaps we can address some of those questions first. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean being poor materially. It doesn't mean having your credit cards maxed out and not a dollar left in your wallet. A person can still be financially poor and yet proudly reject God. Nor does it mean having a low self-image or low self-esteem. Being poor in spirit doesn't mean thinking that you're fat and ugly and useless. Nor does it mean 
being a spiritual wimp, for example, being timid and afraid of standing up for Jesus. doesn't mean any of those things. So what does it mean? Let me explain with an example. Have you ever heard anyone say that Christianity is a crutch for the weak? Have you ever heard that? Yeah, I can see nods. That's good, yeah. It's, it's said in a, in a disparaging way, isn't it? But if you think about it, it's actually true, isn't it? If you've got a, a broken leg or you've had a knee replacement like three quarters of our church this year, a crutch, if you're in those circumstances, a crutch is a wonderful thing, isn't it? A crutch is exactly what you need. It, it meets you at your point of greatest need. If you've got a busted knee and you don't think you need a crutch, well, that's just foolishness, isn't it? You clearly think that you're much stronger than you are. That's what being poor in spirit means. It's humbly acknowledging your spiritual sickness. Knowing that deep down, just as Jono prayed for us earlier, because of your sinful rebellion against God's rule in your life, you're wretched, spiritually bankrupt, without hope outside of God's grace. That's the meaning of the word that's translated poor there. We're, we're spiritual beggars. Can you picture the beggar on the side of a first century road? Hunched over, cowering, utterly destitute. This isn't being in the lowest income bracket. No, this is being in abject poverty. Knowing the hopelessness of your condition outside of God's grace. This beatitude stands right at the start of Jesus' public teaching because it's the essence of the gospel. This here today is the foundation. If you want to live the blessed life, if you want to live the God-endorsed life, the first step is to recognize your utter dependence on him your complete spiritual bankruptcy and need for a saviour. The fact is, friends, if you don't think you need a saviour, you can't be saved. If you think you're better than this diagnosis that I've just given, if you refuse to admit that you are a spiritually bankrupt loser, desperately in need of God's grace. Well, my friend, you haven't understood the gospel and you can't be saved. This is how the wonderful Puritan pastor, Thomas Watson, describes the poor in spirit. Those who are brought to the sense of their sins and seeing no goodness in themselves, despair in themselves and appeal wholly to the mercy of God in Christ. Until we are poor in spirit, we cannot receive grace. For we are swollen with self-excellency and self-sufficiency. If the hand be full of pebbles, 
it cannot receive gold. Until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. We never see Christ's worth. One of the clearest examples, I think, of poverty of spirit in the scriptures is found in Luke chapter 18. If you've got a Bible, please turn there with me now. To Luke chapter 18. Here in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable about two men. One, a respected Pharisee, a member of the most esteemed religious group in Israel. And the other was a despised tax collector. I'm going to read from Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The tax collector here embodies the posture of a beggar. Cowering, crouching, pleading for God's mercy and grace. And this beggar in spirit, overwhelmed by his own sense of sin, leaves forgiven. Whilst the arrogant Pharisee, a picture of self-reliance and self-confidence, who parades his virtues before God, leaves unforgiven. The Pharisee goes on and on about how great he is before God, fasting, giving, following the law. Now, don't get me wrong, fasting is a good thing and it's really, really hard. It's a sacrifice to go without food. It's a sacrifice to give 10%, the first fruits of your income, to God. It's a sacrifice to serve. But yet Jesus says that that man went home unjustified, hellbound, because he didn't think that he needed grace. Blessed are the beggars, the spiritually bankrupt, those who cringe and cower before a holy God because they recognize they've got nothing to offer. This is a really important truth to realign us, brothers and sisters. Sometimes, let's be honest, we can get so busy doing things for Jesus that we begin to think a little bit too highly of ourselves. We begin to think that we've got it all together. We forget our poverty and brokenness. We forget that we 
are dependent on God for everything. We can even convince ourselves that we deserve God's blessing. I'm doing this for you, Jesus. I deserve this in return. We can convince ourselves that our family ties, our respect in the community, our jobs, our so-called good works, we can think that those things are what commends us to God. But Jesus reminds us here, not to strive harder, but to remember our poverty of spirit and so cast ourselves on him. The only way to flourish, to live the good life as a believer, my friends, is to have an accurate picture of ourselves. That by nature, you and I are vile, godless, utterly without merit, and deserving God's righteous judgment. That, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, it's when we embrace this that we can truly change as a disciple of Jesus. When we understand this, we can stop hiding behind our self-righteousness. We don't need to pretend. We can be real with each other. We're all sinners desperately in need of God's grace. It means we don't go around criticizing everybody like modern day Pharisees, patting ourselves on the back for our superior righteousness, whilst criticizing those who never meet our standard. It means we can put to death once and for all our pride, our ambition, our cynicism, our dissension, our self-importance. We know that we are nothing before God. It means we can stop blame-shifting and we can own our shame and our sin and our failures. We can recognize that it's okay to be needy. We don't have to pretend. We can live lives marked by confession and repentance, a spiritual humility that recognizes that God is the one who meets our needs. Recognizing our spiritual bankruptcy, my friends, is the start, the beginning, and the end of the life of a disciple. If you think you've earned God's favor, you're kidding yourself. Until you see that you're clothed in filthy rags, you can't put on the perfect robe of Christ's righteousness. Until you recognize your poverty, you can't find your riches in him. You know, if you were to ask the average Aussie what their view of Christians is, 
I'd hazard a guess that poor in spirit isn't going to be high up on the list. Arrogant, self-righteous, proud, judgmental. I think they're all going to get a run before poor in spirit. And you know, brothers and sisters, I think there's something for us to learn in that. And true, those who oppose Christ will reject the truth. But before we, before we explain away any sense of conviction, I think we need to own some stuff for a moment or two. Because I think if we're honest, far too often our posture, internally, if it doesn't manifest itself externally, has been one of self-righteous arrogance, not as destitute messengers of the king. And so I want to say, if you're here this morning and you've been given the impression, either by me or someone else, that you need to clean yourself up before becoming a Christian, that you need to be good to be a follower of Jesus, I want to apologize. Because that is not what Jesus taught. Christians are broken people. Spiritual losers who humbly recognize their need and who throw themselves at God's grace. And you know what, friends? We see here in this first beatitude that when we recognize our poverty of spirit, Jesus offers us a most amazing promise, one that couldn't be clearer and that can't be greater. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' kingdom, friends, belongs to the losers. This is Jesus' promise to the broken and the beaten, the desperate and the destitute. Entry into his kingdom now and for all eternity. Jesus inaugurated his kingdom in his incarnation, in his ministry here on earth. And he welcomed into the kingdom those who would repent and believe. That was the heart of his teaching, wasn't it? To repent, to, to recognize your brokenness and to believe in him. And do you see the promise here? Did, did you notice the present tense there at the end of this, be, the end of this beatitude? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus invites each of us, spiritually broken and destitute, into the kingdom of heaven now, through faith in him. And so friends, I want to invite you this morning. If you're here and you haven't yet entered Jesus' kingdom, perhaps it's because you've misunderstood the entry criteria. Maybe you always thought that you needed to clean yourself up, that you needed to get right before Jesus would accept you. I pray that you see that Jesus' entry terms are very different. All we need to do is recognize our brokenness, recognize our sin, recognize that just like a beggar, we need God to survive. We need God to redeem. And if that's you, I would love 
to chat to you after the service. I'm going to hang around down the front after. I'd love to share with you from the Bible what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because this kingdom is open to all. The needy, the bankrupt, the broken. Please see, friends, it's only through recognizing our poverty that we can inherit true riches now and for all eternity. What a contrast Jesus' words are here to our world, aren't they? Our world tells us, blessed is the one who's got it all together, who's good-looking and rich and famous. But Jesus says, no. Blessed are those who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy and who throw themselves at God's mercy. Theirs is the kingdom. They are children of the king. Let me pray that we might be those people now. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for these powerful, life-changing words from our Saviour, who at the start of his public ministry declared that it's not the wealthy, it's not the together, it's not those who have the marks of worldly success that can enter the kingdom, but those who recognize their poverty, who recognize their need, and who cast themselves on your grace and mercy. Forgive us, Lord, as those who have entered the kingdom for perhaps thinking far too highly of ourselves, for thinking that our works in your name earn your favour, rather than it being Christ's perfect righteousness. Forgive us, we pray, for perhaps failing to communicate the full picture of the gospel, for being proud and judgmental and unloving in your name. We pray that you might transform us, our Lord and our God, by the power of your Spirit into men and women, boys and girls who embody these beatitudes. Help us, we pray, to be poor in spirit, that we might inherit your kingdom, now and for all of eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.